A um, couple things. Uh, I'm about to uh, give you an extended intro on the life of a man by the name of John G. Patton, um, who was a missionary to the cannibals of the New Hebronese Islands, which I'll talk about in a moment. I brought two volumes. I bought his autobiography, which I'm going to share from some this morning, that reads like better than any action movie you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> this thing's incredible. And then this short little work here is a new biography put out by him. This one's phenomenal as well. So I'll put these up here if you want to look at them. They're under here. And... Uh, I think once you hear about him, I have an extended intro on him, I think you're going to be uniquely interested to read about his life. So, but if you would, then let's, let's begin our study. Please open your Bibles back to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And uh, I know that if you are anything like me, uh, you have been thrilled as we've been studying inspired church history. And we are going to revisit the topic today of what happens when men try and fight against God, as we'll even see a quote today, of men fighting against God, and the entire theological point of Acts 5, 17-42 is this, God wants us to know that nothing can stop the progress of the gospel. And we need that kind of encouragement because we see hard hearts, we see evil, we see difficulty, and we needed to be reminded in this portion of Acts, Luke wants us to know that when men try and stop the gospel, they're not picking a fight with us, they're picking a fight with God, and they will always lose. And before we go ahead and look at that portion of Scripture, I want to tell you a tale in church history, a narrative that documents that it's impossible to stop the gospel, as this portion proves. Particularly when God taps certain men for a task, nothing will stop them. And I want to tell you about what God did to save thousands of cannibals, man-eaters, on the islands of the New Hebronese, or the New Hebronese Islands. There is a, a chain of islands... Um, I wondered, I was thinking about you, Tim, if you've been to this part of the world. Um, it's basically 450 miles long in between Sydney and Honolulu. They're called the New Hebronese Islands. Have you ever been through there? Yeah. Have you? Wow. Been to the islands? Uh, been just, on? just over them. Just over them. Wow. Amazing. So I think the population there is about 190,000 or so now throughout the, all those islands. But... We didn't really know anywhere in the world, nobody really knew besides the people located on those islands prior to 1606. In 1606, those islands were first discovered. Now, it was not until 1839 that those islands were first visited by missionaries. So I want you to think about something. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, Right? God disperses men because of their pride in their hearts. These cannibals on this island, whenever they got there, we don't know, but they had not heard from their Creator since Genesis 11. Think about that. You think about, side note, think about people that are unreached around the world. They have not heard from their Creator since Genesis 11 if the Bible's not been translated into their language and they don't have access to the Word of God. That's a frightening thing. So... The New Hebronese Islands, on the, they call them the South Seas, New Hebronese Islands. And the reason they call them that is they're very similar to the islands off the coast of Scotland called the Hebrides Islands. So, here we are, 1839. 
and people are getting burdened because um, what would happen is trading ships would go through and they'd see these natives on these islands and then they'd report about them. And so people were getting burdened about the natives on these islands. So, in 1839, the London Missionary Society sent two men to visit, our first two missionaries to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Seas. Those men did not go with their families because of the danger. You see, anytime you remove the light for that long, cultures just get darker and darker and darker. And by the time you hit 1839, these islands were full of witchcraft, satanic worship, and cannibalism. In fact, the cannibalism and the wickedness was so severe that basically they came to believe after we have conquered our, the other tribal parties, they had all these tribal parties spread all over the islands, once we had conquered them, the way to show our dominance and show that we've gained victory is to consume them, to eat them. And then... To make matters worse, because of their witchcraft and their satanic worship, Satan had put such a spell over these people that if a chief would die and he had multiple wives, they would typically bury one alive and strangle another. And this was a sacrifice back to the gods after they had been killed. Now insert these courageous missionaries in 1839 who hit the beach. Two no-name men. You've never heard their name before this morning, I'm sure, unless you've read... John Patton's life. Two men decide that they're going to go. John Williams and James Harris. This is in 1839. November that year, they go on a ship. They board. I mean, they go on a ship. They come onto the land there. They hit the beach. They meet the natives. Within minutes, they're killed. And then they're eaten before the ship so that everyone could see, don't come back to our islands. At this time, John G. Patton is about 15 years old. And God saves him at an early age. And he becomes very burdened for the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands. In fact, 48 years later, at the end of his life, here's what he says about those first two missionaries that were killed and eaten. He says this, Thus were the new Hebrides baptized with the blood of the martyrs. And Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that He claimed those islands as His own. What a perspective. Man, nothing can stop the gospel. <laughs> nothing. Now insert John G. Patton. John G. Patton, he's born to a godly family. His dad's this godly father. If you read his biographies, it's so compelling to read about this dad of his who every night would pray for the nations and it burdened his soul. He's saved early. He starts ministering in Scotland, particularly Glasgow. You say Glasgow or Glasgow? Anybody know? I can't figure out a pronunciation. We'll go with Glasgow. He is saved. He ministers for about 10 years. But you know what happens? He gets burdened. You know why? Because he sees all these Scottish people with a copy of the Bible and they don't care when the natives in the New Hebrides don't even have access to the Scriptures. So he says, I must go. And so he starts telling people, I'm leaving my influential ministry in Scotland, my comfortable ministry, to go to the New Hebrides Islands. And he said, he said this, after, after he pronounced that, a man came up to him by the name of Mr. Dixon, a fellow Christian in Glasgow, and he said this to him. He said, the cannibals, you're going to the cannibals? You will be eaten by cannibals. Patton responded, 
If I die here in Glasgow, I shall be eaten by worms. <laughs> if I can't but live and die serving the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. <laughs> Incredible theology. He traces his roots back to the Scottish Covenanters, where you had some 20,000 of them that died over a 30-year period in the 17th century. That's where his theology came from in the Reformed Church of Scotland, and he says this about his heritage. I am more proud that the blood of the martyrs is in my veins and their truths in my heart than other men can be of noble pedigree or royal names. He loved his heritage. He loved his history. And so he decided to go. So, in 1858, at the age of 33, he and his new wife Mary board a ship and they head off to the New Hebrides Islands. And they first arrive in a little place called Tana. But he didn't really understand yet about the islands and how malaria worked. And so he built his first house down by the water. He didn't know the dangers. And within two months, his new wife and his little boy died. He says this of them. Then in a moment, altogether unexpectedly, she died on March 3rd. To crown my sorrows and complete my loneliness, my dear baby boy whom I had named after her father, Peter Robert Robson, was taken from me after one week's sickness on the 20th of March. Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me. As for all others, it would be more than vain to try and paint my sorrows. Fast forward a number of years as he looks back on that, just to again see the theme of how God sustains His people and when He wants the gospel to go somewhere, it's going to go. Here's what He says about God sustaining Him after that loss. The ever-merciful Lord sustained me. And that spot where they died became my sacred and much-frequented shrine during all the following months and years when I labored on for the salvation of the savage islanders amidst difficulties, dangers, and death. He basically ended up ministering at Tana and other places for 30 years. He married again. He had 10 children. He buried four more of them on those islands. Not only was his personal grief incredible, and his second wife was incredibly godly, he almost lost his own life to malaria and other diseases multiple times. He says this, Fever and malaria have attacked me 14 times severely. He almost died of sickness 14 times. That's about every other year he almost dies of a major illness. And he still marches on for the souls of these savage native cannibals. These uh, men were roughly about four to five feet tall. <laughs> and they would gather hunting parties to hunt him on a regular basis. In fact, very often um, he would be sleeping at night and he began to start sleeping with his clothes on. Because if he had to run out in the night, if they'd attack his house, he could head up into the, into the jungle and hide somewhere. And he had this little dog, this little chihuahua dog, that would notify him when they would come to try and kill him. <laughs> he says this, Our continuous danger caused me now oftentimes to sleep with my clothes on, that I might start at a moment's warning. My faithful dog, Clutha, would give a sharp bark and awake me. God made them fear this precious creature. <laughs> And often, she was used in saving our lives. He said of being hunted regularly by hunting parties to try and kill him, he said this, I had my nearest and most intimate glimpses of the presence of my Lord 
in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear would be leveled at my life. Speaking of the hundreds of times he was almost killed, he says this, My enemies seldom slacked their hateful designs against my life. One time, a wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket pointed at him. He directed it toward me. God restrained his hand. God knew what he wanted to do with John Patton, so he kept preserving his life. Nothing stops the progress of the gospel when God wants to use a man. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he wasn't even there. Fully persuaded that God had placed me there and would protect me till the allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord, I left my life in His hands and I felt immortal until my work was done. Another time, a hunting party showed up to kill him first thing in the morning. Wake up in the morning, cup of coffee. Tribal men out there, they'd paint their faces, they'd come ready, they'd have all their weapons. Regular time, on a regular basis, they'd try and kill him. He says this, One morning at daybreak, I found myself surrounded by our men. And a chief intimated that he had assembled them to take my life. Seeing that I was entirely in their hands, I knelt down and gave myself away and my body and soul to the Lord Jesus, thinking this would be my last time on earth. Rising, I went out to them and began calmly talking to them about how unkind their treatment was of me. (laughs) And he says this, and I contrasted their treatment of me with how I've been towards them. At last, some of the chiefs who had attended worship service, because he held church services there, those that would come, they would come with all their weaponry, they'd come faces painted, they'd come ready. In fact, one time in a church setting, another chief attacked him and someone saved his life right there in church. At last, some of the chiefs who had attended the worship rose and said, Our conduct has been bad, but now we will fight for you and kill any who hate you. So he had a new set of guardians. Unbelievable. The stories go on and on. One time, uh, a, a, a tribe was hunting him down, and another chief, who was not a believer but was friendly to him, pulled him up into the canopies, and he lived up for weeks in the canopies of the forest as they hunted all below for him, and God preserved his life. Another time, a man came and said, Will you call on me while I'm sick? So he says, Sure, I'll come call on him. So he shows up to care for this man who's deathly sick, thinking he can give him the gospel. And the guy pulls out a knife and puts it on his heart. He said, I did neither move nor speak, except that my heart kept praying to the Lord to spare me. Or if it was my time for him to take me to glory, he'd take me himself. There passed a few moments of awful suspense. You think? (laughs) I mean, it's unbelievable. My sight went in and out. It went and it came. So he kind of blacked out. Not a word had been spoken except to Jesus. And then Ian, this man that he had went to visit, wheeled the knife around, thrust it into a sugar cane, and cried out, Go! Go quickly! I ran for my life a weary four miles till I reached the mission house, faint, yet praising God for such a deliverance. You know what God did with this man over 30 years and his sacrifice? He watched about 100 missionaries get killed around him. One missionary story he even tells of was a guy leading a Bible study and a tribal party came out with tomahawks and killed him right there where he's leading a Bible study. These were a wicked, hard-hearted people. Now you imagine the love and sacrifice and what God does in the heart to make a man like this. After 30 years there in the New Hebrides Island, here's what he said. When the gospel was done, 
On our New Hebrides, more than 12,000 cannibals had been brought to sit at the feet of Christ, and 133 of the natives had been trained and sent out as preachers of the gospel. He retells one moment when a man who was a cannibal, who used to have his hands covered in human blood, first took communion. He says this, At that moment, I put the bread and wine in those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love. I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze upon the glorified face of Jesus himself. Man. Beloved, you know why the gospel cannot be stopped when God gets a hold of a heart? Because that's what God does in people's hearts who have been transformed and give their life for him. At the end of his life, even after all that loss and all that sacrifice, do you know what he said? Here's what his final closing statements when he looked back on his life. As I lay down my pen just before he dies, let my, let my record, my immovable conviction that his is the noblest service in which any human being can spend or be spent. And that if God gave me back my life to be lived over again, I would without one quiver of hesitation lay it on the altar of Christ that he might use it as before in similar ministries of love, especially among those who have yet to hear the name of Jesus. God gave his best, his son to me, and I gave back my best, my all, to him. And that is the story of John Patton. Now, beloved, we are wimps. <laughs> and we get discouraged and we doubt. And we have all these fears come into our mind. And yet, the perspective that we're going to see in the apostles today and the perspective that was in John G. Patton is the kind of perspective we need to be encouraged about. You read that and you say, wow, I need to wake up and spend myself more for the glory of the gospel. Me too. And when we see the apostles today, we'll say it again. And this is why inspired church history comes to us in the book of Acts, just like that narrative, to remind us to be those type of Christians and to remind us, just like in John G. Patton's life, God wanted to get the gospel to the bloodthirsty cannibals. And so he preserved John G. Patton. <laughs> If he would have taken his life, guess what God would have done? Rose up another man. And that's what we'll see all through the book of Acts. We're going to see men die. We're going to see Stephen die and James die. But today, we're going to finish out seeing that nothing can stop God. Nothing can hinder His gospel. And that's we're going to see the second two failed attempts to stop the progress of the gospel. And I just thought John G. Patton's life was a great intro to segue into this passage. So now into, from church history to inspired church history. We are going to be looking at the second two failed attempts to stop the progress of the gospel. Remember last time I said in verses 17 to 25 that imprisoning God's preachers failed to stop their preaching. And then in 26 to 32, hurling threats failed to silence men of conviction. And then I introduced you to the third failed attempt. Executing the twelve failed due to an unexpected advocate. Let's revisit that scene. Notice verse 33. Remember here, the apostles are before the Sanhedrin, the religious elite of the day, and they're about to be executed. They're about to be killed because the men are jealous of them. But God, this is interesting, softens a man's heart to preserve the lives of the twelve because he wasn't done with that. Can you think of another time where God softened a man's heart for a temporary time to preserve something? 
How about the nation of Israel with Pharaoh? We're going to hear about that this morning from Joel James. This is, you, you, you look at the narrative and you go, wow, this is amazing. But we must not forget that God sways men's hearts like channels of water. And here you have a self-righteous Jew, a religious leader, Paul's mentor when he was a Jew. Paul mentions him in Acts 22 and says, Gamaliel, he was my mentor. And in Acts 12, Paul is going to go try and kill a bunch of Christians. Gamaliel is his mentor. But here, God softens his heart to preserve the life of the twelve. You don't want to miss the, the divine act behind this. So, notice what God does when the twelve are about to be executed. He temporarily, we might say, softens the heart of an unexpected advocate, and this execution is stopped. Notice verse 33. But when they, that's the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they heard this, they heard what? That Paul and the apostle, I mean, excuse me, that Peter and the apostles are going to stand with the truth and they will not compromise no matter if their life's taken. 33. They were cut to the quick and they intended to kill them. But, 34, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people. So you even think about that. There was a price tag for him. He was very respected and he's about to introduce doubt into everybody's mind that they may do something wrong to stop the apostles. This is a significant action here. And don't make Gamaliel the hero. God is the hero here in softening his heart. He was respected by all the people. He stood up in the council a formal time and gave orders to put the men outside. So, the twelve are about to be killed. He sends them out. And then he gives a speech. And I mentioned it to you last week. Here's basically the speech. Here's his logic, okay? And then I'll just read it. The logic is this. He's going to introduce two different people that came in and said, we've been sent by God. Maybe they claim they're messiahs, whatever. He's going to introduce these two historical figures, and he's going to say, those men sent, said they were sent by God. Okay? And then he's going to say, but then they died. And after they died, what happened? Their disciples dispersed. But, by sharp contrast, there's that guy Jesus, and these are his disciples. He died as well. They say he's risen. They haven't lost steam. They haven't slowed down. They've been spreading all over Jerusalem. And the more we afflict them, the more courageous they get. We should maybe consider, based on the men we're looking at, if this is an act of God. Because those other guys, when they died, their movement stopped. Jesus died. They say he's risen. Their movement hasn't stopped. They're spreading. That's his logic. And you know what a Pharisee's job was? One of their jobs is to be a lawkeeper and to look forward to the future Messiah. So in some temporary moment, we might say, maybe Gamaliel's considering they're actually right. We don't know that. But we know this. Think about this. He's about to stand up and speak and put his reputation on the line to save the lives of the twelve because God wants him to. Because God's not done with the twelve yet. So that's his logic. Now let's look at it. Notice what he says. 36. For some time ago... Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody. He claimed he was acting on behalf of God. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But when he was killed, like this Jesus I'm going to talk about, all of his followers dispersed and it came to nothing. 37. There's another guy. So Thudius we know hardly anything about. We, we really have no historical facts of him. But Judas of Galilee, we know that he actually was living around the time probably of, of 2 to 4 AD. So right around when Caesar was taking the census and Jesus was born. So he talks about him, 37. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of notice, the census, Luke 2. And he drew away some people after him. He claimed to be speaking on behalf of God. But he too perished, and all those who followed him scattered. 
But in the present case, notice 38, by sharp contrast to those two men, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. Why? For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. Like the previous two options, right? The previous two men rose up. How did we know it wasn't of God? When the leader died, what did the followers do? They scattered. But here, the, lead, the followers aren't scattering, are they? They just stood there, we looked at last week, and looked at them and said, even if you kill us, we won't capitulate. We obey God, not men. You think about that even in our lives, right, beloved? What testifies to the power of the gospel more than a believer standing for what they believe even when there's a cost? This is why the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, because when unbelievers would watch martyrs die for their faith and be executed and be beheaded and leave their families, unbelievers would say, yeah, kill them. Uh, okay, you, you killed them, and they, they did what I wouldn't do. I would have gave up on whoever I said I followed in a moment, but they won't. I must get to know this Jesus they're willing to die for. Followers of a movement, he's saying, should give us confirmation if it's genuine or not. So notice what he says, 39. But if it is of God, which clearly he's considering right now, you will not be able to overthrow it. And here you have an unsaved Jew making an incredibly theologically compelling statement. When you see these types of statements, you must stop and consider. Look at what he says. If we continue, men, we may be found fighting against God. Now stop for a moment. Just think about that. Let's think about the theology. Let's move back from the narrative and think about what he's saying. He's saying that if these are the true disciples of Christ, the apostles, okay, and we actually kill them and we come against them, we haven't picked a fight with men, we've picked a fight with God Himself. Now, as a believer, hear that statement. When we face evil, difficulty, hostility, persecution, people are not fighting with us. They're not ultimately against us. They've picked a fight with the undefeated champion of the universe, God. And He's never going to be ultimately beaten. And so the early believers, you take this out, they would have said, this unbeliever made such a theologically accurate statement that if men try and stop the gospel, they'll never win. Why? Because they're fighting God. I love that. I was so encouraged by that. Think about that, beloved. You have family and relationships and friendships where people push back against you. They're hard-hearted, right? You have people in your life that you try and talk to them about Christ and they're resistant. On your campuses or at the university or at your work, they're always trying to silence and, and muzzle the truth. I remember when, um, when we went to Scotland on the Reformation tour, it was such a dark place in Edinburgh where we went to. It, it, was, it was sad. You went there and we're coming and saying, Reformation history! And you go around and it's like everywhere they can, they're trying to hide all that was their history. And then you go to John Knox's house, who single-handedly in many ways led the Protestant Reformation in Scotland. And basically it used to be a larger place and now they've narrowed it down to this little kind of hole in the wall where his house was and they're just trying to push it out. They want him silenced. Same thing happened when Bethany and I went to the Vatican years ago in Rome. You know the one thing we couldn't find in the Vatican? A Bible! How could there not be a Bible in the Vatican? Why? Because 
People hate the truth. They don't want to see the things that could expose them. And when I go there, I could go to Scotland and be like, oh, I'm so discouraged. John Knox just has this little place and, and the Scottish Covenanter's graveyard is tucked away and no one wants to know about it. Or I could go to the Vatican and say, there's no Bible. And I just have to remind myself, these people, they've picked a fight with God. They're not going to win. We know the end of the story. The King of Kings returns and writes everything. So we don't have to be discouraged. We don't have to be faint-hearted. We don't have to wonder, oh no, evil's going to prevail. If they rip down John Knox's house and they cover up the Covenanter's graveyard and they try and remove the Bibles, God is going to win. <clears throat> Revelation 5 says what? He's going to have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Just like John G. Patton. He's going to get the gospel. So when we're prone to get discouraged, I'm sure like the other church, we need to go back and realize when men try and stop the truth, they have picked a fight with God. Now, they don't die here. Notice, they took his advice. Look at verse 40. The apostles don't die. They took his advice and decided not to kill them. But let's not forget something. This is about probably uh, within 60 days of the crucifixion, right, of Christ. By the time we get to the mid-90s in the book of Revelation, what's happened to all of the apostles? They've all been killed. So just because God preserved their life here doesn't mean it's a guarantee He always will, but it does mean this, that until He's done with us, like it says in chapter 13 about David, He served in His time and then He went to sleep. We're all immortal until God decides we're mortal. Right now, God wanted to make sure that these men could still do the ministry. They picked a fight with God, they can't win. I love that. So, failed attempt three. An unexpected advocate stopped the killing of the twelve. Notice verse 40. They took his advice. And then they beat him, as we'll see in a moment, and almost killed them. I just want to draw one implication from that before we move on. When you read that, and you see that on the pages of Scripture, I want you to think about this. Is God done acting in this way? Is God done fighting to progress His gospel? Is He done using His servants to see them progress the gospel? Don't you want to be the type of people that God taps on the shoulder that He can use in this way and we can see His mighty acts? Spurgeon has a little bit of a rebuke for us when we read passages like this and think that that could never be us or that God's not working to preserve our life for usefulness. He says this, We ought not to look upon our history imagining God's done working. We do our Lord in injustice when we suppose that He wrought all of His mighty acts and showed Himself strong in the early time but does not perform the wonders or lay bare His arm for the saints who are still here on earth. Beloved, if you're on this planet breathing and you're a Christian, God wants to use you mightily if you be the type of person that stands like this and trusts that if they come against you, they're coming against Him. So you leave it in His hands and you just be faithful. I love that. Don't minimize how God wants to use us like this, beloved. On your campuses, at your workplace, in your families. And you may say, but that, the people that I want to minister to that I care about most, they're so hard-hearted. You mean like the bloodthirsty cannibals of the South Seas, New Hebrides, who were so steeped in bondage that their wickedness was far beyond anything we see in our culture, and God penetrated their dead hearts? Oh yeah, and guess what? He saved you. <laughs> and you're just as wicked as them. You just may not have carried it out. He had to get to the same darkness in your heart. 
We must remember that when men try and come against the gospel, they're fighting God, and God wants us to fight with His weapons and give Him the truth. That's our third failed attempt. Executing the twelve failed due to an unexpected advocate. Now, this next point, we're going to spend the rest of our time on. It's going to be a little more convicting because it's going to get into our inner life a bit. It's going to challenge us. And here's your fourth failed attempt. Flogging the twelve failed to silence them from proclaiming Christ. Notice verses 40 and 42. I'll just give it to you up front, then we'll walk our way through it. Notice verse 40. They, the Sanhedrin, took whose advice? Gamaliel's advice. And after calling the apostles in, they decided not to kill them. But look at what they did. They flogged them and then ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So here is the attempt. The attempt to stop them from the progress of the gospel is they beat them within an inch of their life. What would they do next? This is just got to be one of the most striking statements in your New Testament. So, after being beaten an inch of their life, they went up from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they just kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Failed attempt four. <laughs> Floggings can't stop the progress of the gospel. So let's walk through that, back through that a little bit. I want you to see how significant these statements are. Does anybody know what a flogging was? And how significant that was? Anybody know, studied floggings? Well, I'll tell you what a flogging would look like. I'll give you a real ex- example. Imagine, right up in front of you here, at this time, some godly man who had been proclaiming the gospel was pulled up in front of all the people in the street. They do it publicly so everyone would know so they could shame them. Their whips would have somewhere between 3 to 12 cords. On the whips, on the end of them, they had large stones like a marble so that they could beat the flesh. And then put throughout it, they had broken sheep bones so that they could rip the flesh. In Deuteronomy 25, it talks about floggings, but they don't say an amount. We have no amount in the Scripture, but by the time we get to this time in Roman history... They must have killed enough people through the floggings because they said we can only do 39 lashes. If we do 40, we're going to kill people. So they would beat them on their back and on their chest for all the people to see, and they would do it pre, um, before they oftentimes would crucify them so that the crucifying would go quicker. Now back up and think for a moment about what was just said. Verse 40. They took his advice, and rather than killing them, they flogged them. So they beat the apostles with 39 lashes with their shirts off in front of everyone to see, and all of the council there to see, front and back, ripping their chest and beating their backs. Now, think about how profound the statement is that comes next. After publicly humiliating them, shaming them, and beating them, notice verse 41. They went on from the presence of the council rejoicing. Now, beloved, you're not, you, you, you can't see the grammar like I can see the grammar. Luke is actually laying out, I mean, in the, in the Greek text is what I'm saying here. He's laying out a grammatical argument saying this. It wasn't just that they got up, walked away from the council, went off together in their little huddle, and were rejoicing that they lived. That were rejoicing that they, um, they were able to be let go. No. I'll tell you what they were rejoicing about in a moment, but the grammar is this. As they were picked up, probably off the ground, 
flesh open, being paraded in front of the people and in front of the Sanhedrin, at that moment, they were rejoicing in front of them. Now, could you imagine the Sanhedrin? Uh, You're still rejoicing in your Lord? You're still grateful? You could imagine, I bet you when we get to heaven, we're going to meet people, and I don't know, I'm assuming, that we're in this audience that saw the twelve marched out, bleeding, shirts off, rejoicing as they left the presence of the council after being beaten. And what they were rejoicing about has to be something we can consider. Because they weren't just rejoicing about anything. They weren't just rejoicing about living or there they let go. Notice what they were rejoicing about. Rejoicing. And let this sink in. Look at it close. Verse 41. They went away in front of the council, in front of the people, notice, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Now, I just got to tell you, beloved, your pastor was about as convicted as I could get the last couple weeks studying this. I was head in hands thinking to myself, what in the world? They marveled that God would even give them the privilege and consider them worthy to have an opportunity to take 39 lashes on their front and back and be beaten within an inch of their life. They considered that a privilege they did not deserve. Now think about that. Just let that sink in as you think about our lives. They marveled that God would look down from heaven on such sinners and actually consider them those that could have the privilege to be beaten within an inch of their life for Him. You don't know what considered worthy means? It's, it's language reserved for candidates who should receive great honor. A classic definition of the Greek of the verb is this. To consider someone worthy, to receive some privilege, benefit, or recognition. Let me just translate that for you. You ready? I'll say it to you twice. I tried to write out what I think is going on in their mind and heart with the verb there and the context. They marveled that God would be so kind to them as to allow them to gain the undeserved opportunity, the profound privilege to receive recognition as a follower of Christ in the form of beating in public shame. I'll read it again. They marveled that God would be so kind to them as to allow them to gain the undeserved opportunity, the profound privilege to receive recognition as a follower of Christ in the form of beating and public shame. Man. They didn't go around like we do today thinking, you've got to give me my rights. You've got to treat me as a certain way because I'm a Christian. They didn't think they had rights. Beloved, think about that. I thought long and hard this week and thought to myself, Lord, I don't want to be one where someone could attempt to make the gospel fail on my life and I don't have their perspective and so the gospel doesn't march on because of me. Yes, God's behind this, but these men were marveling at the privilege. This is showing the convictions that they held. The attempt to fail... The attempted failing here to stop the gospel happened because these men thought rightly about a few certain things. Beloved, do you realize that in our day, you may not realize it or not, but 
sometimes people come to Christ and they say, I've become a Christian. And then all of a sudden, they may not hear a health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Imagine a health, wealth, prosperity gospel now. Come to Jesus and be healthier, wealthier, and happier. The apostles would flip over the tables in those churches and say, Are you kidding me? When I came to follow Jesus, I could go put my hands on the bloody wooden cross and touch my Savior's blood. And if it was two months later, I could see the dried up blood if those beams weren't done. I didn't imagine that I would have a comfortable life after following Jesus. That would have been the farthest thing from their perspective. But I think what we do sometimes is we come to Christ and we think, Ah, I've come to Christ. And I don't want the prosperity gospel, but I would like a comfortable life. I would like Jesus and comfort at my job. Man, I I want Jesus and I want my family to respect my decision that I've made to follow Jesus. Yeah, I'll go with Jesus, but I still want Hollywood and the culture and other people to accept my worldview. They should respect me. Can you imagine them holding that perspective? They marveled that they would have the privilege to be beaten. The only thing they thought was their obligation and what they were owed was suffering for Christ and their obligation was we get to preach about Him. And when we suffer, we get to be like Him. See, we have this whole warped paradigm, don't we? And I think if you're anything like me, we're just going to have to admit up front, we need some repentance in the area of entitlement. (laughs) See, American Christianity has made us imagine that we're entitled to a safe, healthy, happy, wealthy Christianity. Where I keep my job and my Jesus and there's no price tag. They, they wouldn't have even imagined that. They would, they would have said, if I follow Christ, He says pick up your cross and follow me, it's a good chance that's going to happen to me. Good chance I'm going to lose my life for the sake of the gospel. I'm at least going to suffer. They knew what Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, 24. I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. They knew Matthew 5, 10, what Jesus said. Blessed are those who have persecuted you for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They knew 2 Timothy three twelve. Those who live godly in Christ, what? Will be persecuted. They did not imagine an easy journey. They did not imagine an easy life. They knew that following Christ would have a cost. Beloved, I ask you, what is wrong with us when we don't have this perspective? We're just worldly. I'm worldly. You're worldly. When we demand a certain treatment from a culture that hates Christ from a planet that's mostly lost... When we get upset when someone doesn't give us our rights for being a Christian, when we, we get shocked that our family is upset because we've turned from our sin to live for the gospel, we have drifted from Acts 5 perspective. They followed Christ and said, okay, here it is. Family might be my enemies. Culture is going to be against me. My flesh is now going to hate me. There's going to be a price tag. If I imagine I'm going to be influential and popular in the, you know, at the high places, I've got another thing coming. Now we got guys that say, get saved and go in the high places of society and see if you can influence them by massaging your Christianity into their worldview and seeing if you can make it less offensive so they're acceptable. And we go, oh, look at that athlete. Look at that politician. They're going to reach people. Now, you know what reaches people? God reaches people when, when, as Gamaliel said, men are willing to stand no matter the cost, no matter what it takes, and other people go, wow, even if it costs you that much, you won't. You won't bend. You won't break. Even the price tag with your family and your job and your work, for the sake of your conscience, you're going to follow Christ? Yeah. Why? How could a believer live like that? They have stopped trying to extract their happiness here from earth. You know what our problem is? We want heaven on earth. 
You know when persecution stops for Christians? Heaven. A real believer is going to face difficulty. If you don't face any difficulty in your life from any area of your life, you can just be assured you've got compromise in your life. I want you guys to have a homework assignment for you at lunch today, okay? I want you to write it down. I don't have time to go to the passage, so it just became homework. 2 Thessalonians 1, the entire chapter is about believers suffering for the gospel. And the same verb is used. They considered themselves worthy. I want you to go at lunch today and open up to 2 Thess 1. And I want you guys to meditate on those Thessalonians and how they thought about their Christian life. So you say, okay, pastor, you're beat up. I'm beat up. We've got repentance. We're worldly. We care too much about our houses and our stuff and our cars and blah, 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 blah. And we're trying to get happiness here on earth. We can have happiness. We can have true fulfillment. But it comes through obedience. It comes through submission. It comes through... The, they, did they leave grumbling? Did they walk out of there going, Ah, oh, we have to follow Jesus again. They were rejoicing because they had set their hope in heaven and they knew this side of glory they may suffer, but the privilege to live for Jesus is beyond what they deserve. Beloved, if you have pride in ministry, if you, find, if you struggle with personal significance, just remind yourself of this. Not only do you get, get saved, not only does God allow you to be useful, but they were just happy that they got to be useful and being beaten into an inch of their life because then all the world would see, we won't leave our Messiah no matter how what you do to us. Someone comes to us in church and doesn't appreciate us, we're offended. What is that? Pride and entitlement, we've drifted. Let me read you a quote that Pastor Jerry sent me this week. I told him I was going to steal it, and he told me, you always steal my stuff. So let me just give credit to him finding this quote. It's going to be in his new book. It's from A.W. Tozer, and it talks exactly what is wrong with us when we don't have an Acts 5 perspective. Are you ready for it? It's a long quote. Tune in. It's very important. It is of overwhelming importance to us that we should seek the favor of God while it is possible to find it, and we should bring ourselves under the plenary authority of Jesus Christ in complete, listen, and voluntary obedience. And then look at what he says. If you live that way, if you commit yourself to Christ to obey Him no matter the cost, He's the ultimate authority. Here's what he says. To do this is to invite trouble from a hostile world and to incur such happiness as man may naturally follow. He's just saying, you're going to face difficulty if you live this way. Listen though. And to this temptation, there is the devil, the lifelong struggle with the flesh, and it will be obvious that we will need to defer most of our enjoyments to a more appropriate time. Against this background of fact are our childish desires to be happy or to, to be happy or excuse me I'm back up. Against this background of fact, our childish desire to be happy is seen a morally ugly thing. So if you're going to live this way, you must repent of the fact of trying to make heaven here on earth. Holy foreign to the spirit of man of sorrows and contrary to the teaching of the practice of the apostles. He's saying, you want to extract and get a heaven on earth, then you're not understanding Jesus' life or the apostles' life. Their life was sold out for Christ. Yes, you can do your jobs. Yes, you have the other thing. But the commitment of your life is to spend yourself for eternity. So he says, if you've deviated, you've deviated from them. And then look at what he says. Christ calls men to carry a cross. We call them to have fun in His name. He calls them to forsake the world. We assure them that if they accept Jesus, the world will be their oyster. 
He calls them to suffer. We call them to enjoy all the comforts of modern civilization. He calls them to self-abandonment and death. We call them to spread themselves like green bay trees, even to become stars in the pitiful, filth-rate religious zodiac. He calls them to holiness. We call them to cheap and temporary happiness that would have been rejected with scorn by the least of the Stoic philosophers. In a world like this, with conditions being what they are, what should a serious-minded Christian do? So in light of how the men thought in Acts 5 and our proneness to compromise and drift, here's what he says we should do, beloved. Here is your exhortation from the fourth failed attempt. Ready? Here's your answer, he says. The answer is easy to give but hard to follow. Man, isn't that the truth? It's easy to talk about sacrificing for Jesus, hard to live it. Here's what he says. First, accept the truth concerning yourself. You do not go to the doctor to seek consolation, but to find out what is wrong and what to do about it. So first, acknowledge your sin. People that know they're wicked and they've been saved by grace don't get offended when people don't treat them the right way because they don't have such a sense of entitlement. They've abandoned entitlement. He goes on. Seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek through Jesus Christ a right relationship to your fellow man. Set about reverently to amend your doings. Magnify God. Mortify the flesh. Simplify your life. I'm not into tattoos. You want to get a tattoo, there you go. I'm not advocating for tattoos. Listen to it again though. Magnify God. Mortify the flesh. Simplify your life. I'd like someone to put that on their arm. Take up your cross and lean on Jesus Christ to die to this world that He may raise you up in due time. If you will do these things in faith and love, listen, you will know peace. But it will be the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. You will know joy. But it will be the joy of the resurrection, not the irresponsible happiness of men who insist on carnal enjoyments. You will know the comfort of the indwelling Spirit, which will often spring up like a well of water in the desert, not because you have sought it, but because you have sought to do the will of God at any price. As I have said before, we can afford to suffer now. We'll have a long eternity to enjoy. And our enjoyment will be valid and pure, for it will come in the right way at the right time. Beloved, you want to know how they could be beaten and flogged an inch of their life and get up and say, we didn't deserve that? Because for them... To follow Christ and even to be beaten for Him was a privilege they didn't think they deserved. And they weren't trying to extract all they could from this world. They were looking to the next. We sometimes struggle so much to be useful for the next life because we're so obsessed of gaining our happiness here and now. Beloved, if we live that way, we may be one where the tempt isn't failed. Where it actually succeeds. Someone tries to shut our mouth and we compromise and the gospel doesn't get spread because of us. I don't want to be that. So you know what we do? We do what Tozer said. We focus our life. We simplify it. We focus on the gospel. Yes, you have all your responsibilities. I'm not saying that I don't want any of you to go quit your jobs and join a monastery if you think that's the way to go. I do want you, though, to think about the fact that these men had gained a perspective that we need. That it's an undeserved privilege to follow Christ. Even when your best friends and your family are hostile towards you, you should go away saying, thank you. Because think about the opposite. Now let me say it. This will make sense. To not have your friends and family and to not have the, cur- the culture against you and to not be persecuted and pushed back against for the sake of Jesus means you're on your way to hell. 
So the privilege is, I'm on my way to heaven. This confirms my state as a child of God when the world pushes back against me. I'm like Jesus. What a privilege. Wow, thank you for letting me be conformed to your suffering, Lord. I don't deserve that. Thank you. I'm not saying go look for persecution, go look for difficult, but if you live a holy, faithful life in our culture, you're going to face it. If you speak with truth to your lost friends, you're going to face it. If your family sees you not compromising and not living in the world, you're going to face it. And next time you do it, you ought to leave there instead of going, I can't believe that person mistreated me. You should say, oh, that confirmed again, Lord, that I'm yours. I can't wait for heaven where this will be over, but in the meantime, I just need to be faithful. That was our fourth failed attempt. (laughs) The failed attempt of a flogging failed to stop them from preaching. Notice now, read the end again. Finish the chapter. So encouraging. What happened? And every day they went on rejoicing, the temple, from house to house, and they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Four failed attempts to stop the progress of the gospel. And we want to be people who the gospel can't be stopped with. And people that try and stop us, they will always fail because we live this type of life. Amen? Let's be like John G. Patton. huh? Have that kind of courage. Alright, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. We are convicted to no end because our perspective often is so far from that. We get worldly. We obsess over our stuff. We sit around and fear-monger about people and relationships and what they think of us, and it's just a waste of time. What we need to do is make our aim and our mission the same as yours in our workplace, in our homes, in our roommates, in our relationships. We get over the pettiness and the stuff that gets in our way. And when we face persecution from the world, we rejoice that that reminds us that we're yours and you would give us such a privilege. If you modeled that type of life for us, then we count it a mercy that you would allow us to endure. Because Lord, there'll be people in our lives you will save when we respond this way. And we want lost ones in our life to know you and they will not see the power of the gospel if we compromise. So may we stand, may we be courageous, and may we even think about Gamaliel and his theologically accurate comment, even from an unsaved heart. When people come against us, we don't have to fret. They're fighting against you. You win in the end. We just want to make sure we're on your team, living for you, for your glory. May we go over to hear from Pastor Joel and hear about the Old Testament and be thrilled again about a big God who is worthy of our service. And may we repent this week of worldliness and our drift. In a culture without persecution, it is hard for us to stay on task. So help us, Lord, be the types of Christians Tozer talked about. In your name we pray. Amen.